Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones, every friend, to look inside their hearts and understand that I. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay. And before we get started today, I always just like to um, tell everybody who Alzheimer's Speaks is and what we're about, because we get new listeners around the world all the time. Alzheimer's Speaks is an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. And we believe by joining forces and sharing knowledge and having these everyday conversations about life with dementia, we can remove the stigmas that are attached to memory loss and help those living in the trenches with this disease take back their lives and live with purpose. Together, we can help everybody understand the true needs of this disease and remove those myths and stigmas. At our core, we believe that we can battle this disease. We're stronger together. All of your clicks and shares and likes with the show have been so powerful. So I encourage you to do that because Alzheimer's Speaks isn't about us. It's about all of us. And when you like us and tweet us and share with your LinkedIn groups or you can even embed these shows onto your Facebook page or onto your websites, um, please feel free to do that because you're allowing others access to this free information and best practices that we're gathering all around the world. And by your clicks, and by those just taking those couple of seconds, you allowed Alzheimer's Speaks to be named the number one influencer online regarding Alzheimer's according to ShareCare and Dr. Oz. So I want to thank you all for that, and I ask you for your continued support. And know that those clicks are being heard and they are making a difference. Um, one of our major goals is raising awareness, and so again, this is a way that you can you can help us and partner with us uh, by working together. Because I'm a firm believer that we just can't keep scaring people about this disease. We have to bring them hope, and we have to show that there is life and compassion out there. If you haven't visit, visited our um, main website, which is Alzheimer's speaks.com i encourage you to do that there you'll have access to all our other platforms we have a blog we do a webinar series called dementia chats that's free to the public um, and businesses as well Um, people are using those for training Uh, you can get to the youtube channel and so many other things 
Um, also, my programs for uh, keynotes and training are on there as well. Now, the show is really critical because what we do here is we bring everyone's voice to the plate. And so we'd love to hear yours today as well. And you can join the conversation very easily by utilizing your chat box and making a comment, or you can call in live to the show. And that number is 714-364-4757. That's 714-364-4757. And when you call in, uh, you can either call in by Skype if you're using your computer, or you can call in on your, your cell phone or landline. You will be asked to push one just to get into my queue. And when there's a break in the conversation, I will definitely pull you back in uh, to our conversation here. I want to uh, always mention, people are always looking for support, so I always like to mention Alzheimer's Disease International. They are the organization of all the Alzheimer's associations around the world. So if you're trying to find one close to you, you can either Google Alzheimer's Disease International, known as ADI, or go to www.alz. Dot co dot uk and um and then uh, people are also asking about trials a lot and there is a a study a tau study available right now and if you just go to uh com, that will get you to the the tau study so i encourage you to do that as well uh, today is going to be a fun show. We're going to be talking about uh, caregiving coaches and how can they help you um, with with dementia if you're if you're in that battlefield, if you're in that zone. And I think we're going to have a really fun, interesting conversation. Our first guest is Mary Brett, and Mary is the founder and CEO of Brett Coaching and Consulting. Um, her work has always been about encouraging, exploring, and creating life awareness by helping others create life strategies that enable them to grow and create new norms. And I like that, creating new norms, because dementia really mandates that with us. So I'm looking forward to, to talking with her more about this. Uh, Mary has lived and worked in Japan and England and throughout the United States before retiring from a civil position with the federal government. Each place, she says, inspired her to reach out and create strategies, not only for individuals, but agencies to help them reach their highest potential. As a consultant, learning to think outside the box allowed her and her clients to grow uh, not only professionally, but personally. Later on, she had a wake-up call that encouraged her to further her education in coaching, and the opportunity enabled her to transition her previous skills in nursing, counseling, psychology, and social work into a coaching and consulting um, businesswoman. 
So Mary's practice focuses on working with families and caregivers, especially those that are caring for loved ones who have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's or another form of dementia. She's trained with the Alzheimer's Foundation, and she's facilitated a caregiver support group for over two years where she's gained so much experience and knowledge. But she's also living with a husband who has dementia, and that has been a true laboratory, I'm sure, for her. Mary has also published a couple of books and several articles, and she's very well respected in the industry. I'm thrilled to have Mary Brett with us. Welcome, Mary. Thank you, Lori. It's nice to be here today. Well, I am. I'm just thrilled to have you on the show. Mary and I uh, were able to talk a little bit prior, and it was a very fun to get to know a little bit more about this wom- this woman. I love um, one of the quotes you had sent me, which was uh, you said was one of your favorites by Maya Angelou, that says, "Stepping into a brand new path is difficult, but not more difficult than remaining in a situation." which is not maturing to the whole woman. And I just think that is so beautiful because it's really easy for us to get stuck, and I think that's one of the blessings that coaches um, can help us realize and um, be able to grow and expand into. So, Mary, I always ask everybody, before we get started, if they can give us a little personal background. I know you have been touched by Dementia. Will you do you mind sharing just a little bit about um, your husband's situation and, and where you guys are at with that? Well, right now, um, Lori, we are um, working through it. And what I mean by that is, my husband is pretty high level functioning in time. He was diagnosed about four years ago as having frontal lobe dementia. And frontal lobe dementia is one of those that um, affects the judgment and decision-making. And so it's one of those things that you have to kind of um, stay on top of things to make sure he's safe and that things go along the way that you have them planned. And it, it has been awesome for me to have had the previous experience that I've had because I can... um, keep things on track with him, and also I am aware of the resources that are available to help me as I'm working through this process. Wonderful. So you actually were got involved with uh, dementia prior to your husband's diagnosis then? I most certainly did, and I had okay. no clue at all that it was going to be anything that I was going to need. And I'm also recognizing as I work with people, um, I am learning that many of them are finding themselves in the very same position that I'm in. They had no knowledge of what was going on, and they found themselves thrust into becoming a caregiver, which affected them because they had not planned it and didn't really know what to do. Okay, and and I think thrust is a good word because it's not a slow process. It's like, boom, you're there, you know, yes. once, once that diagnosis hits. 
Um, can you tell us uh, just a little bit, uh, because a lot of people might not know what a, what a caregiver coach is. What, what exactly uh, is that role? Can you define that for us? Oh, certainly. I'll be happy to. A caregiver coach is someone who works with the caregiver, and they're working side-by-side side with the caregiver to help them um, find the necessary resources to help the caregiver keep themselves healthy and also to help the caregiver recognize the skills that they already have that they can use in working with their loved ones or the ones that they are caring for. It is oh, I I love that you say the skills they already have because I, I think it really is something that is so global and and life encompassing. You know, when we're caring for one another, but we get in this crisis state and we don't always look at it like that. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you um, use that as part of your definition. Was there anything well, else you I wanted think... to add? I kind of interrupted you there. I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. I think oftentimes what happens with the caregiver is they begin to do things for their loved one, and it starts on a, a very small scale. It could be, for example, they run to the grocery store for them and they help them out that way. And then the next thing is that they um, might be needed to do uh, is take them to the doctor. And then, um, then they move into... Um, preparing the medications. And so what starts out as a small thing ends up being a very large thing. But And when they're doing all of these things, they don't realize that there are resources along the way that could help them. There are agencies that would be happy to take that person um, during the day to something like bingo or just to help them out for a short period of time. There are agencies within the community that are happy to do those kinds of things. But if you're kind of working with the person and you don't realize you have become a caregiver, you're just in it, then you may not might not think about reaching out to get someone to help you. Well, and I, I think that that's very interesting what you said is that you – that there are people out there that don't realize that they are a caregiver um because mm-hmm. everybody's definitions are different and we had a we had a long discussion on the dementia chats our webinar series about even just that term because a lot of people with dementia um find that term belittling because they don't feel like they need 24-hour care and that they're still able to do a lot of things but uh, on the same side, a lot of people just look at themselves as a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter or a friend. And so um, there is a lot of resistance to that term, just like there is the word senior. And I, I find that fascinating in and of itself, um, you know, with that. So um, can you tell us, Mary, a little bit about, you know, how should – um, caregivers or some people refer to them as care partners or companions or carers. How should people deal with stress? Do you have some ideas there? I do. 
And that is one of the things that I try to work with when I am um, dealing with uh, a caregiver who and try to provide um, things like coordinating their services and um, helping them to problem solve and helping them to cope with the daily challenges of uh, which could be family dynamics and plan ahead and those kinds of things when I'm working with them and I'm trying to empower them. The first thing that I look at is how they're managing their stress. And so many of us just allow stress to build up and, and because they don't know which way to turn. They don't know who to go to. And I share with them and help them to understand that they may need to delegate some of the responsibility. Sometimes there could be two or three children, but only one of them is taking the responsibility to see after their parent or their loved one. Or it could be just a spouse, and they have nobody else to help them out. But, again, there's resources. There In our community, there is a lady who will actually provide respite for a couple of days, And so that means you have to let go of trying to hold on and take the total responsibility. And then if you take care of yourself, which means make sure you go to the doctor, make sure you are healthy, then you can take care of your loved one even better. Which is really true. And I think, uh, I mean, I've been in the thick of things with my parents, and that was the last thing I thought of with me on the list. I mean, it just never even occurred to me. Um, and even when my dad passed away and my mom moved into a nursing home, I was so enthralled with their lives. I didn't I didn't even know what I liked to do anymore. I had really lost myself, which is not a healthy thing at all to do. But I think it's pretty common out there. Um, do you see a lot of that where people just lose themselves and get overwhelmed? Yes, I do. And then there are certain populations of people um, who think it's it's not right to allow someone to help them. They Mm -hmm. think it's their job, that they have to do it themselves, no matter what kind of condition they are in. And so those old myths we have to kind of get rid of, and we can get rid of those by listening. And I work with them to help them to understand there just comes a time when you need to have to ask for help. Yeah, and there shouldn't be shame in it. I think that's one of the things that we really have to work on is removing the shame and the guilt. Um, mm-hmm. And and I I had a revelation with my with my parents, and this this happened after my my father died of brain cancer. But he um, after he died, I was talking with my brothers. And it was really interesting because there were times I was really upset with my brothers. What's wrong with them? Why won't they help? You know, why aren't they around more? Time is precious. And, you know, I I was trying to fix them for a long time and, and correct them. And what I learned after my dad died, we were talking one day, was I had all these precious stories about my parents. And my brothers didn't. And I felt just this 
horrible grief and sadness. Um, and I felt so bad that they didn't have those things. And and part of it was because, you know, they didn't want to deal with the emotional piece of losing their parents. But I also had to take some responsibility because looking in the rearview mirror, I saw that I helped keep them away, even though I was like, come on, you know, can you help? Can you do this? Can you do that? You know, mm-hmm. I was saying the words, but my actions and my past history and role in the family was one of perfectionists. And so they knew they would never meet my standards, and they knew they would never do it right. So why get into that whole hornet's nest? And so I really had to take a big look at myself after that, and and it I realized it very deeply, and it changed me in terms of realizing, and I kind of joke when I speak now and tell people that, you know, no one wants to be tied to to even me 24-7. I mean, we all like variety Mm -hmm. in our lives, and it's nice to be able to let your siblings or friends or other professionals come in. It allows that person to engage with more people, and and that's healthy, I think. Don't you? that's That's a good thing. I think it's very, very good, and I have also run into um, children who are in denial, and Mm -hmm. they are saying their parent is the same as they always have been. And yet I can look at them myself and and know that they're not the same that they have always been. And so when you get into this big denial thing, it is very difficult to crack. Um, you have to help them to understand the need. And then you have to kind of work with them slowly. And what I do is I opportunities. And when I hear an opportunity that I can get a foot in the door, I go for it to help them mm-hmm. to understand. And then I have had them come back and thank me for saying or getting them on the right right track rather than just letting them go and stay in denial yeah and it it is it's when those blinders are on it's it's tough it's tough to get them off um people and to get them to understand and i think um it's the fear you know of the unknown and i think you know part of you know how this disease is publicized is through the fear and you know it's yes. used to raise money and and I don't agree with that um philosophy or that tactic i I'm much more about giving people hope and um showing them there's life with dementia i mean i I've been on this path for thirty years with my mom, and if I ran scared for that whole thirty years from it i I can't even imagine what my life would have been like, and it's really in so many ways been a blessing to me i mean it's been a profound um a profound situation for me that that's changed me i think for the better um and on many many levels many well, many Lori, levels. i i Lori, i agree that we have to give them hope and that's one of the things that i work toward is helping 
any of the clients that I'm working with to know that there is hope. And actually, I find just living with my husband, every day is different, but every day is not a bad day. There are some fun days that takes place, and when the fun opportunity presents itself, I smile, enjoy the moment. Because even for us healthy people, we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. But we do know that if we work in the direction of looking for hope, hope for the future, that it is going to inspire us and we're going to keep moving forward. And that's what I try to do with my clients, is to inspire them, help them to understand that we care about them, we love them, and that we want the very best for them as they are working through um, with their loved ones. Yeah, very, very true. And I think that's one of the nice things about coaching is you do have the resources. You, you're you looking at this from a holistic piece um, in terms of how do you live with the disease, how do you make it good for you, and how do you make it good for the person you're caring for. Um, how do you make it safe for both of you? And I think safety isn't something that people really think about a lot, but um, there's a lot of different angles to this disease, and safety is much more than um, just starting a fire or wandering off. I mean, safety can have to do with, in in my um, definition anyways, in terms of your health. And so when you're talking about the stressors and you know, we talk about the numbers of people that uh, that are giving care to somebody that die first. Then, what happens to that person? You know, so it really is critical that we we are able to find balance and live with this disease um, in a comfortable fashion for for everybody, so that it's healthy for for everyone. And that is um, very true. The majority of caregivers in the um, world right now are spouses, relatives, and friends. And there's over 30 million households who are providing some form of caregiving. And not only that, um, many of these people are not paid additionally. It is just, They're just taking on the responsibility on top of what they Um, will do on a normal basis, which puts them at high risk for health problems and emotional problems. Yeah, definitely. Those numbers are just uh, enormous, and I think so many people don't realize how how big and powerful um, those things are. this disease touches way more people than than people realize. Um, it, it's just it's absolutely fascinating when I go speak. I to make that point home, I'll ask a few questions about who, you know, who's had a parent that's either had this disease or has it, or a sibling, or you know, we kind of go down this whole whole row. And by the end of my six questions, you know, I can have I'll, I'll just take a hundred people in an audience. Um, there might be might be one or two people still standing that have not personally been touched, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you know that it's you know that it's going to hit. 
um, it's going to happen. And so it's so critical that we all get educated. And there are so many wonderful resources out there. Even that's you know one of our purposes on Alzheimer's Speaks is to help kind of lift best practices and resources up so that people can can find them. Can you talk about just some um, typical resources that are available in a community that somebody could tap into if they're dealing with dementia? Um, here in um, Williamsburg, we have the Center for Excellence in Aging, and they um, provide an overview for anyone who has um, a need. You can just bring your loved one in and they will do some basic assessments there. We have also several support groups that are available to help people who um, they're, who already know that their loved one has been diagnosed or they're struggling with caregiving. Um, you can also go out on the Internet if they have Internet access. And uh, AARP has just come up with a toolbox for caregivers, and they they have a doctor that is available there where you can write a question and send it to him, and he will um, respond back to you. So there are various um, um, organizations that are tapping into um the needs of what a person might have. We have also Faith in Action, and Faith in Action um, will provide transportation and a lot of other activities for family members who are in need. And at our church, there is a respite care, um, and that respite care will provide four to five hours of assistance to just help people out when they get to the point that they, can, you know, just need a break, just need to get away. And not to mention, we have a lady here who her ministry is doing nothing but taking care of, care of the loved ones so that the caregiver can have a respite. And what she does is she will keep them 24-7 and and she is a nurse trained. Her husband works with her. She has a hospital bed and everything available, and she will provide their medication and everything as long as you leave instructions as to who their primary doctors are, the hospitals, and where um, if in case an emergency, you know, comes up. That's just a few of them, but there are many, and I'm just thankful that there are many here. Yeah, there. Um, Linda um, had just noted in the in the chat box that you know what scares her the most is that she'll die before her husband. And so I asked uh, asked her if she had any support, and she said yes. Her daughter is finally coming around and seeing that she needs help. Um, I don't know where you're located, Linda, but um, there is a, a place down in Atlanta that I just found out about called Caring Together. And they provide respite care, and it is so
so critical for people to maybe tap into, you know, depending on, you know, the stage and, and uh, you know, where your, where your husband is at. But, you know, there's adult daycare um, programs where they can go during the day, get socialization, get fed, um, be watched over very well, and just gives you a chance to breathe. Go get your hair done. Go take a walk. Do the laundry. But just be able to feel like you can do something um, on your own. Uh, Linda's noting here, he's in a nursing home, and I thought it would make it easier on me, but it's still a lot of stress. And, and that transition is tough, um, definitely. How long has he has he been in the nursing home, Linda? And we'll see if maybe um, maybe we've got some advice from Mary for you as well on on transitioning uh, care because that is hard to to turn it over. I remember when my mom, you know, went in. I was there all the time. I didn't have a lot of trust, and I think that's part of I think that's part of the letting go process. What do you think, um, Mary, about that transition? Do you think trust comes into play? I think trust is very important, but I also think she's um, hanging on to the stress. Um, she's not letting it go, and it. it probably is because she doesn't trust that they can do what she can do. Um, And she might be feeling a little bit of uh, lack of control right now. She might need to to see, she could work with a a caregiver coach to help her to, to pick up her own strengths now and to refocus back on herself where she's probably given up focus on herself and been dealing with her husband. Um, mm-hmm. I wonder how she's sleeping, you know, um, and how her, how her appetite is, because that is a, definitely one of the symptoms of, of caregiver stress. Oh, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I see that totally. And uh-huh. you know you lose those sleep patterns, um, right? And you know we think we're calming ourselves down. It's it's tough. Um, I I learned to do meditation and breathing. Um, just taking those deep breaths were amazing. The difference it made for me. And one of the things I learned was even in breathing was when I inhaled, I asked, and you can ask ask your God to give you whatever it is you need in that moment. And then on the exhale, I released everything my body no longer needed. And I would just, I would do that 10 or 12 times. And amazing the difference it makes in terms of calming the body down, just those really deep breaths and that thoughts of give me what I need in this time um, to make me strong and clear and, and comfortable, and then release release my worries over to you. Um, Linda is saying that's that is good. One of the, that is one of the um, things that I do with my clients, too, is to help them learn how to meditate, mm-hmm. help them to learn how to relax their bodies, and how to change the focus from what they're focusing on because certain focuses cause us stress. And then we can go to a more relaxing or beautiful uh, focus and calm our body down. 
So certainly that is the direction that I would certainly be want to be moving with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I think that that's really, really common. It's, you know, when you're sleep-deprived, you just you can't think straight. I mean, everything is just off in your body. And I think, uh, you know, when you asked about how are you eating is important, too, because a lot of times we don't eat properly and we're feeding our bodies the wrong fuel. I mean, I was the queen of the drive-throughs because I was just running, running, running. <laughs> I didn't cook, you know, or pizzas. And and that's just horrible for you, you know, um, on a cost. Yes. And granted, they've gotten better in terms of options, but would I would I pick those? You know, probably not. And um, you know, it just or going for a walk. You know, yesterday mm-hmm. I was feeling kind of stressed, and I just and and I'm you know my mom's been in the nursing home now for for twelve months, and my stress really didn't have so much to do with her, but I just thought. I just need to take a break. I just need to just breathe and not think about anything and just take in the beauty around me and be appreciative because I think sometimes when we get an overload, um, I know for myself, I I think I lost my appreciation of things at times. Right. and and again, I think that's not a good thing to do too. So to find a way to to find the joy again um, in in life is really important. I walk every morning for three miles, and I don't even have a dog, but I walk mm-hmm. my neighbor's dog, who is a fast walker, and I enjoy the beauty of nature as I'm walking, and I hear the birds chirping, and um, the quietness of the morning is very different from the the quietness of the day. And so that is just so relaxing for me, and it helps me to get started um, for my day, and I'm more relaxed. And that might be something that she wants to take a look at. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um I've got somebody who just, uh, or Linda had said, I wish you were here in Texas. Now, with a caregiver coach, I mean, you can do that remotely, too. Absolutely. Um, A lot of people do telephone and Skype and um, email support. So there's all different ways. So you don't have to, if you're looking for a coach, you don't have to have somebody in your area. I mean, there's people, uh, you know, on the other side of the world that are communicating um, today, which is is real uh, real important there. Um, Carol is writing. She just got into the show about breathing in and out. I think she disagrees with my with my mode. She says a more powerful technique is in with the bad and out with the good. Um, in with all the I don't know if I'm reading that right or not. In with all the bad stress. Um, I'll have to read this a little bit more. I don't know. You become transformer. While you are reading that, um, Mm -hmm. that's the good thing about a caregiver coach. You can coach over the phone, Mm -hmm. and I have done coaching through Skype. Mm -hmm. And the furthest away I have had clients is England. And so it makes it really nice 
And all you need to do, I have a, my website there, is to go on the website and you can send me a um, message. And I will respond to that message and I will let you know what would work for the both of us and we can get together just as um, there is a need. Okay. Um, she had put in here that uh, it's uh, Toglin is the type of meditation practice, and um, I'll I'll kind of look that up and see. I don't know. I was always taught and to blow out the bad and mm-hmm. breathe in the good, but you know, there's always more than one way to do it. And the thing is, you have to figure out what works for you. So yes. um, if the other way works for Carol. That's great. Um, I always recommend people try everything. What do you have to lose? You know, um, check it out and see what resonates, you know, with you um, on, on any type of, of parallel there. Um, I want to uh, talk a little bit about what would one need to um, connect to a support group? What what kind of information are people looking for? I, I know the word support group sometimes just scares people as a whole and um, it makes them a little bit nervous um, as to what are the expectations, you know, of the group and what are they going to be asked for and what are they going to be asked of. Can you give us some ideas on that? Well, there are various kinds of support groups. And a person may go to a support group and don't feel comfortable there. Mm-hmm. And then they may go to another support group and feel comfortable. So it is my recommendation for them to try to find out, and usually you can find out through your churches or your senior centers where certain support groups are. And then she can find out what type of support group um, because there can be anger management. They could be um, a caregiver support group. They could be pain management support group. There's so many different kinds of groups. So if they go and they're not comfortable, then I recommend that they find another support group. And not only that, the the facilitators of the group, sometimes you might not feel comfortable with the facilitators. And if you're not comfortable with that, that's going to cause you more stress. And mm-hmm. I recommend you finding some place that you you're, are comfortable with in order to follow through. If you have the Internet, you can go on the Internet and you can look for support groups by putting in your zip code and just say support groups and a list will come up. We have in our area a health magazine that um, you can go to any medical facility and pick it up. If you look in the back of that health magazine, it is going to list all the different types of support groups that are available in our area. And then you can go to, you know, whichever one you feel is going to meet your needs. Okay. Great. I did um I did put in that link. Um I just want to note that Carol had mentioned um mm-hmm. on in the chat box and I'm also going to drop in 
the company that I mentioned that does the the respite in Atlanta. Um, if anyone is interested in that, so I think that's that's great. You had um, told us what you know that there are a variety of, oh, yes. of support groups, and you know there's also the memory cafes and the Alzheimer's cafes, which are not just for the person um, with. Uh, the, that is carrying, and I'm going to sneeze here, so I'm going to try, try not to, but I usually do three in a row, so we'll see what happens. Uh, maybe I can get rid of my sneeze. Um, but those are, are wonderful resources um, for people who are in early stages and mm-hmm. um, and their care partners. And some of those are a very social model. Some of them are um, programmatic and social um, some of them spend the full two hours together or whatever the session is. Others um, split them apart and have group time. So it all it just all depends, you know, on that, what, what you're looking for. But, again, check those out. And the other thing I'd like to just uh, put a pitch in here for, on alzheimerspeaks.com, we do have a resource directory, and I built that to be a collaborative resource directory so that people can put in information, um, you know, and refer others to services, tools, and products that they feel are are good and helpful, and there's no fee to do that. So if you go to alzheimerspeaks.com, all you have to do is in the header, there is a box that says partnering options, share that you care. And if you click on that, it'll give you all the breakdowns. But it's from um, businesses to books and videos and newsletters and blogs. But anything that is specific to dementia and dementia um, caregiving, um, I would see as appropriate to go ahead and put in there. The goal is to put the URL and direct people directly to whatever it is you're talking about. So if it's a book and it's a couple clicks in on the site, you go to you go in and give them that URL because wouldn't you agree, uh, Mary, that caregivers just don't have the time to do the search and destroy. Part of, I think, what you most yes. likely bring to the table is to help them streamline things and to get organized um, and to, to look at things in a different light along with all of your supports. Is that correct? That is very correct. And um, oftentimes um, caregivers need as much education as possible so that they, it, it, if they, if you're comfortable with what you know, then you can feel more comfortable with what you have to do, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Oh, that makes a lot of sense, makes a lot of sense. Do you – oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say sometimes we find that there are workshops and um, um, different kinds of venues that are put on by our local hospital, and Mm -hmm. they're usually free. And it's – usually only takes about an hour or so if you register to attend them. And they Mm -hmm. can be very beneficial because, again, they will be given resources and other things that you might be able to tap into uh, within the community. Okay. 
Okay. Can you give us some strategies to deal with a person who is experiencing memory loss and is in denial? That's a big issue, I think, for people. That is a very big issue, and a lot of times it takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of, well, the one thing that doesn't seem to work is correcting them. Um because in their mind, what they are saying and feeling is what they feel at the moment in time. So you have to listen to them, and if it's something that needs to change, you might want to wait a little while before you come back and say that to them. And if you say it to them later, they might not remember that they had said it in a different way earlier. Mm -hmm. So it takes a lot of patience. You have to learn to listen carefully and reflecting back, not immediately necessarily, but a little later down the line works a lot better than trying to correct them immediately when something is happening. Okay. And that, yeah. Well, and one of the things that I, I learned was that you can't change their mind. I mean, because a, a lot of times there's just not that rationale that we yes. know we see it and it's real clear to us. Um, and we're, we kind of go, well, why don't they see it? Because they can't, you know, yes. is kind of the simple answer just because they can't. You know, yes. and sometimes we take things real personally. And mm -hmm. if there's one thing I try to, you know, tell people is that, you know, they're not doing anything to try to uh, attack you personally. You know, it's just the way they're seeing the world. And we have to, mm -hmm. you know, we have to look at those things a little bit differently um, in terms of how we how we are judging things. Um Will and we have to mm -hmm. and we have to know that our loved one is not that person that they were before they started this down this road of dementia. We love mm -hmm. them, and they will always be who our spouse or our um mother or whatever, but their thought processes are changing not because they want them to change, but because there's something in the brain that's causing the change. And mm -hmm. so we have to show loving and acceptance for who they are, where they are, in the space that they are. Mm -hmm. Very important, very important. One of the... Um tools that that I developed on my you know with my mom's journey is just called your memory chip <clears throat> which gets people to shift from um being task oriented to being um person centered because what I found when I talked with caregivers and myself every time I asked them what did they have to do everyone was focused on tasks and with each task there was kind of a twang in the voice uh -huh. that they didn't really want to do that. Um, so I teach people to focus on three things. Are they safe? Are they happy? Are they pain-free? And have that come before the task. 
And mm-hmm. that helped me be more person-centered. It helped me not get emotional about a reaction to something. It helped me let go of things that I was trying to still implement or change that really weren't important. And when mm-hmm. I focused on are they safe, are they happy, are they pain-free, it allowed me to let go and, right. and not be so driven by those tasks. Um, do you see others really driven by task? Absolutely. And I also see them being driven by, oh, they they wouldn't do that or or whatever. And it's causing more stress for for the loved one and them rather than if they did focus on the safety, the happiness, happy and being pain-free. And I mm-hmm. think that is so important um, for them to be safe under whatever conditions they're under and that they are happy doing what they do. My husband is a trumpet player, and mm-hmm. he loves to play the trumpet. And he continues to play the trumpet two or three times a day, so I let him enjoy that. And he never complains of being in pain. So basically, overall, as I said, he's pretty high-functioning now. We don't know what um, turns that can take place. But we want to, you know, continue with the safety and to keep him happy and keep him moving down the road that we're going in. Very true. Um, Linda was just noting that one thing that's really hard for her is her husband hasn't talked in almost two years. And so she doesn't know what he's thinking or saying. And and Carol has made a comment that you have to learn to read their eyes and look at all the signals. And I I do. I agree with that. You have to really turn into an investigator and look for those nonverbals. And I also want to add, don't give up on hope that they won't talk. Um, That's to correct. you again, because it's it, this is a very bizarre disease. My mom um, now she'll say a word here or there, but she can't uh-huh. say a sentence. But she hasn't said my name, and some of you have probably heard this story before. But I'm going to share it because I don't think uh, Linda and Carol have. Um, she hadn't said my name in like three years, and one day when I walked into the nursing home. Um, she was laying in her bed. This is kind of a cute story, so I'll say the whole thing. She was laying in her bed with her pants pulled down to her crotch and her shirt tucked underneath her boobs, and the sun was um, coming in, and she was just, like, laying like she was sunbathing, you know, through this picture <laughs> window in her room. And I, I, she had a roommate, so the curtain was drawn. And as I um, walked into the room, I could see her shadow, and I knew that she was sleeping or laying down and when I turn and I I see my mom and my mom's a big gal she's short but she's big her big belly is hanging out and she's like basking in the sun with this huge smile on her face like a cat you know and and I started giggling and I said oh mom do I need to pull out that bikini for you and out of a dead sleep this woman who hadn't said my name in three years said oh Lori I don't think I should be wearing a bikini. And then she went back to sleep again. And I just sat on her bed and I bawled and I rubbed her tummy, I bet, for two hours because I didn't think that I would ever hear those words out of my mom's mouth. And that was such a gift to me that day. Oh, yes. what and, a gift. And I've, 
And there's been so many little things like that that have happened. And, you know, I, I just I, I just believe that sometimes they just can't muster it up. And I know that there's things going on in the brain that people will argue that they physically can't do it anymore. Um, but I do believe in miracles, and I, I do believe in those moments that they will just come up and and grab you with a big hug even though they can't physically do it anymore in some other Mm -hmm. fashion Mm -hmm. and you're just going to feel this warmth and closeness that you you can't even put into words but you will never ever forget so uh like carol said watch for those eyes listen for the giggles um look for the hands and the feet movement um, mm-hmm. All of those are little signs that we we forget about, and they're so beautiful and so powerful. And I think, um, and I'll ask Mary this, but I think they make us much more in the moment when you're focusing on those things. Um, you're so. just you're just much more connected. I mm-hmm. um, I believe, anyways. Um, in my situation that my mom has taught me to love on several levels of unconditional love I didn't even know existed, you know, through this process. She's she's raised me um, in terms of my ability to love and be compassionate, and and um, it, it's, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Well, I can't believe that we are down to like four minutes um, before we pull in our next guest here. I, I knew the time would fly with you today, Mary. Um, <laughs> it, and it really has. We've got a couple other comments, so let me just see. Uh, Linda is saying, um, I know he would never have uh, done that before Alzheimer's. Oops, I must have missed something there. Uh, let's see. Carol's just saying that one of her shortcuts is to pretend, um, let's see, that I pretend like I'm looking into his eye, into the eyes of a puppy. So they're just kind of having a private conversation here, which is which is fine. I, I love it when people get engaged and, and share uh, what is working because we never know what's going to work. And so to me, and I believe Mary believes the same, is we need to build this tool case this toolbox um, of different resources because different things work at different times because not only do they change, but we change, Um, you know, when our moves affect things. So what would be in your wrap-up, Mary, what what would be your advice for um, caregivers and companions out there that are dealing with, with dementia? I just need them to know that caregiving for a loved one can be a very rewarding experience. If they just don't look at it as negative, look at it as positive, we all are learning, we're growing, and so each day look at the love that the person is offering them and look at the love that you're offering them back. And just remember that loving and caring for each one has so much meaning. And we're writing our history as we go along. That person is also writing 
it, even though it might not be verbally. It can be nonverbal. Yeah. And I can be reached um, through my website. It has been wonderful, Laura, having this opportunity to talk with you and sharing with those that are out uh, listening to us. Well, great. And your website is www.brettcoaching, and that's B-R-E-T-T, and then coaching.com. And, um, you know, get a hold of Mary. Like I said, she can she can help you no matter where you are in the world. Um, it, it's, it's very easy to have these conversations in different forms. So talking on the phone, doing email, um, I don't know if you do Skype or not, or I Google do. Hangouts. Okay, um, people do are Skype. doing doing so many different things. So a lot of people are starting to just do Facebook or FaceTime now on their phones and stuff. So I mean, there's so many different ways to be able to interact. So don't cut yourself short by thinking that you have to stay in your own in your own neighborhood. And Carol's asking, are the programs archived? Yes, all the programs here are archived, so you can find any of them at any time, 24-7. Well, Mary, it has just been a divine pleasure to have you with us today. Um, have really enjoyed the conversation and hope to have you back in the future if you're interested. Oh, I'd love to. Okay. Well, you have a great day then, and we will talk soon. Okay? Okay. Bye-bye Okay, now. thank you. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Um, before I pull in our next guest, I want to just give some some updates um, and um, information. Our last radio show was on inflammation and dementia, and we talked a lot about, you know, what you can eat and, and some supplements to, um, to help with dementia and inflammation because there there is a link there uh, and there might be some help for you. So that might be an interesting conversation. Our next radio show is going to be on July 2nd, and that one's going to be very interesting as well. I'm going to have the Blondes versus Burnettes on, which is a powder puff football uh, group, and there's several of them in our country that are young women raising funds uh, for for the disease. And then the second half of the show is going to be uh, a man that has developed heartbeat lullabies, which sounds a little strange, but it's absolutely fascinating. And I've actually listened to them and slept like a baby. So these can really help anybody, uh, somebody with dementia or a caregiver. Um, you know, I remember having puppies and they would say, you know, put a clock under under their mat, you know, because they're used to the mom's heartbeat. So this is a real interesting uh, conversation that's research-based to boot. Also on our website, you can find the last uh, dementia chats or any of them. They were, they're all archived there. We talked about the purple angels uh, symbol um, to raise awareness, and we talked about the government in dementia, and we also talked about the words we use, caregiver, um, care partner, carer, and what do people with dementia think about those words? Because Dementia Chats is all about um, their voice. They are the experts that I interview. And our next Dementia Chance will be on Dece- uh, December, I'm jumping the gun, uh, June 25th. 
Uh, I also wanted to highlight on the blog, there were a few um, articles that generated some some conversation there. Uh, Radio Station versus Therapeutic Music was a real interesting article. And then Tips to Coping with Loved Ones uh, Who Have Alzheimer's. It was uh, also another one, and then you can always get to the uh, dementia chats there, or you can find them on uh, on Facebook as well, or or also um, on the the main the main uh, website. And then I want to mention, I'm really excited about this. Um, James uh, Sreesi is uh, a man who developed Jiminy Wicket, which is a croquet game for people with dementia. And he he started this because his dad had dementia. And he found that he couldn't communicate, but when they played croquet, um, there were just these smiles that grew. And so he actually flew into town the other day and uh, got our memory cafe set up, and we're going to play this Friday uh, for the on the longest day of the, the year and the summer solstice. Um, we're going to go ahead and get together and have a, a fun game of croquet um, under his auspice of Jiminy Wicket, which is really user-friendly. It, it, we can do it with wheelchairs. Um, we can really do it with just about anybody. So if you're interested in information on that, um, he is on YouTube, or you can go to www.jiminywicket.com, and that's J I M. I N Y Wicket W I C K E T dot com and get more information um, on that. So let's get started with our second half of the show. Um, Sue Paul is our next guest, and I'm again very excited to have her. She is known as the Dementia Queen. She has been an occupational therapist for over 20 years, and she specializes in rehabilitation and habilitation of people with Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. She is part owner and uh, uh, chief operating officer of the Baker Rehab Group in Maryland, and she's active in the Alzheimer's Association both as a speaker and an advocate. She has a blog called The Dementia Queen where she provides tips and strategies for caregivers who want to maximize the function of those with the disease. So with no further ado, welcome, Sue. How are you doing today? I'm great, Lori. Thanks for having me. Well, good. I'm I'm thrilled to be here. You have to tell people how you, how you got uh, deemed the queen of dementia. Or the dementia queen, I should say. Well, I guess it's because um, I was interested in this from the therapy perspective long before anybody else. Um, because historically, therapists didn't have to deal with anybody that had a diagnosis of dementia. Um, but so anyway, I became very interested in what I'd like to make a difference for these people, and, and I've, I've really applied myself to learning as much as I could. Um, so as a joke, they they kind of said, "Well, you're the queen of this. Why don't you?" Why don't you handle this patient or something? So the dementia queen just stuck. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, too funny. Now, have you mm-hmm. been personally touched in your own family or circle of friends uh, by dementia? 
Yeah, um, you know, my grandmother probably had Alzheimer's disease, but we just didn't call it that. Um, you know, she had she she was getting old and forgetful and a little difficult at times and a little self centered and you know, nobody nobody called it what it was. Um, you know, looking back now I, I certainly think she had Alzheimer's disease, but you know, we just mm-hmm. kind of didn't call it that. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, I had a great aunt, and and they just said she was going senile. I mean, that's what they yeah. deemed it back then, and uh, and that was when I was thirteen, and I was so crushed the day she didn't know who I was anymore, and and nobody could give mm-hmm. me an answer, and I just remember this deep pain of thinking I don't ever want anyone to feel that pain. And little did I know, you know, I would be doing what I'm doing, you know, now, you know. 40 years later in terms of trying to give people hope and and teach them how to connect in different ways and talking with experts all around the world um, to help help give insight. Um, Can you tell us, um, Sue, uh, what exactly is an occupational therapist? Because not everybody knows, and so we might as well start from ground one so that we've got a good base for our conversation here today. Yeah, a, a lot of people don't know what occupational therapists do. Um, we're we're trained to to deal in function. It, it's very similar to physical therapy in that you have to have physical abilities to do a lot of functional things. So we learn a lot of the same things that a physical therapist would learn, but our goals are different. Our goals are really ultimately, you know, can you get across the room and open the refrigerator and get a drink out and carry it across the room <laughs> and can you open the bottle and you know it's much more. Uh, detail and function-based than physical therapy. But a lot of our um, strategies and approaches we use are similar. Like you have to have the ability to walk and you have to have the strength to get up and down and and the strength in your hands to open a bottle. Um, We also focus a lot on cognition, which is something physical therapy doesn't do. So we're trained to, uh, to test the different kind of cognitive systems like uh, like memory and sequencing and insight and judgment and problem solving. So it's a very holistic profession. Um, we we deal with all kinds of patients from pediatric up to geriatric and, and every kind of disease or injury that could come along that impairs your function. So it's funny that, um, you know, I didn't know I was going to be an occupational therapist either. I, I thought I'd be a physical therapist and a sports medicine kind of person, and uh, I found that I really, I really like the function. I like having a reason to, to do what I do and, and see the outcomes in terms of, you know, improving somebody's quality of life and their independence. So that's that's basically what OTs do. Okay, great. Yeah, because I think that people do um, do get them mixed up so often, and and I <laughs> one of the things that I love that you guys do is breaking down these tasks, because we'll just say, you know, go get the ketchup out of the refrigerator, and we think it's one step, but it's not. Right. (laughs) Right, right. There's a lot that goes into that. (laughs) Yeah. That's right. You know, or or make a piece of toast. And and we realize, you guys really help us realize how detailed um, things are and how we've just categorized them in a lump. And I I think that that's um, very interesting. Can you give us an example of a task that we say and then break it down um, into steps so that people can kind of see that? Um, 
you know, what it takes so to make a piece of toast. Can we use that as an example? Sure. Well, you have to, um, I mean, the planning into making toast starts, you know, before you even have the supplies. I mean, you have to know what you need to, in order to make toast. Um, you need to be able to plan the steps ahead of time. So I'm going to walk across the room and I'm going to get out the bread. I'm going to open the bread and take off the little twisty tie that's on the, on the bread uh, package. And then you have to open the toaster and, or, and put it in the toaster and turn the toaster on. Um, if you're going to put anything on your toast, you're, you're across the room again uh, planning exactly what it is you're going to be getting out of the refrigerator, uh, looking for the butter and, and searching high and low and behind things and in drawers, you know, looking for things. Um, it takes a lot of visual attention and it takes a lot of uh, high-level cognitive processes to execute something you're planning. Then you need to get the knife and then you need to have the dexterity and the coordination to spread butter onto the uh, the toast, you know, without smashing it or without um, breaking it and turning off the oven if it, if it was, you know, something that was left, could be left on. You know, mm-hmm. there's so many... So many things that go into it. And you have to maintain your balance this whole time and, and not fall while you're doing this and be able to shift your attention to something else and, and rely on this um, subconscious cognitive process to hold your balance up. And, and, mm-hmm. you know, and, you're, and while you're doing that, you're thinking of what you're going to be drinking when you have your toast and what show is on that you want to get it back to seeing. And, gosh, you, can't, you need to remember to, to call your daughter because, you know, she called. And, you know, you have so many things going through your mind, and it's not just about the toast. But then again, you need to be able to pay attention to what you're doing. Yeah. So it's very detailed. Now, <laughs> now, Linda had asked a question, will Medicare or Medicaid pay for occupational therapy? Yes. Um, there needs to be a medical reason, a medical need. Um, but, yeah, there's a variety of settings, too. It could be in, the, in an outpatient setting uh, or in the home. And actually, our company does outpatient in the home, which is also another um, harder to find service, but it is available in some areas. Um, but yes, um, Medicare Part A and B will pay for occupational therapy. Uh, lots of private insurances do. Medicaid does. I'm, I'm not as familiar with what the requirements are, but I know that they do in some situations. Uh, so yes, Linda, it does. Okay, great, great. Um, now, can you? Um for for people with Alzheimer's disease, can you tell us, you know, what are some of the benefits um, for them to to go and have rehab services um, like physical or occupational therapy versus um, versus not? I guess. Well, Lori, if I could back up, you know, 20 years ago, that wasn't that wasn't our problem. If somebody with Alzheimer's or another type of dementia broke their hip or had a stroke mm-hmm. or, you know, broken wrist, they were considered not rehabable because they couldn't follow instructions. So unless you, you, you were a conventional, traditional patient who could respond to commands and, and execute mm-hmm. the plan, you weren't considered a, a rehab candidate. So about 10 years ago, the philosophy started changing on that, which is about the time I became the dementia queen, <laughs> because <laughs> these people need rehab services. And just because they can't follow the weight-bearing precautions because they had a hip replacement and they're not allowed to put full weight on it. They've never used a walker before. I mean, that's up to me. I have to figure that out. It's not the patient's fault that, they, that they're not able to follow my conventional approaches. I'm the one who needs to figure that out. So patients definitely benefit from, from all the, 
the therapy services needed for all the, the regular reasons that people need therapy, but also, you know, this whole uh, the dementia component, it's a disease. You know, Alzheimer's is a disease. So I think it should be rehab just like any other disease would be. Yep. Okay. And and to me that makes a makes a ton of ton of sense. Um can you talk about um what type of role like an, an occupational ther- therapy would would play with somebody and you know how often would they be seen and you know uh you know what's the length of time of a visit and things like that? Mm-hmm. Well, you know that's just going to vary um Unfortunately, there's no standardized uh, system, or there's no standardized level of care even for somebody with Alzheimer's. Generally, when when I see somebody with dementia, and you know, I do a lot of home health. Um, that's mostly my setting I'm in. But you know, there's a there's a whole variety of issues going on. It's not just about their Alzheimer's. You know, it's about their their home not being set up safely, and uh, you know, and their balance isn't good, and you know, maybe they're not. Um, using their arms as well. You know, their strength isn't good and their, their fine motor coordination isn't good. You know, there, there's a variety of things that could be going on with somebody who just has normal aging going on, you know, in addition to dementia. So, um, you know, it can vary as far as whatever you find. I think most people get about a 30 to 60-minute visit in the home, um, anywhere from, I'd say, five visits up to, you know, two or three months. Mm-hmm. It just really depends on, on, you know, you need to be able to justify why you're there and you need to be able to show progress and and things that you're working on. And I think part of why I'm becoming so vocal about therapy in, the, in this dementia community is because, there, you know, like I said, there is no standard of care and it really needs to be emphasized to the payers that these things take longer for this population. You know, repetition, repetition, repetition is how these people learn. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're we're writing it, we're writing the the, process, the procedures as we go. You know, we just need to get the ear of the right uh, lawmakers and and uh, the people who handle the the money <laughs> to understand why why these uh, why it takes longer with somebody with dementia. Yeah, Does that answer de- your question. Definitely. Yeah. Now, Linda is also asking a question. She said. Um, you know, like with somebody who's leaning to one side and stumbling with walking, is that something that you could help with, or would that be more of a um, um, physical therapist versus occupational therapist? Or you know, it takes a village. I think I think it's good to have the whole team involved. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's certainly physical therapy domain. Um, occupational therapists have to deal with that too, though, because if I'm trying to teach somebody to get in and out of the bathroom and they're leaning and stumbling, I need to address the leaning and stumbling. So, mm-hmm. yes, um, physical therapists are are excellent at that, and occupational therapists can definitely assist with it. If, if this was my patient, I would certainly call in physical therapy to help me, you know, because the more mm-hmm. the better. They certainly qualify for it. So, yes, mm-hmm. I would say um, let's get PT involved as well. Okay, I, and I think that that makes sense, and I like – I like your attitude of it takes a village and, and all working working together um, because the more resources, uh, the better the better we can do with that. What are some of the challenges that you see um, when people with Alzheimer's or dementia are alone? Oh gosh, <laughs> I think we've all seen this to some degree. Um, you know, the, one of their biggest problems is access to care because, um, you know, whether or not they're driving is a, is a whole another ball of wax. But, you know, access to the doctor, um, knowing the questions to ask, 
being able to be their own advocate. You know, those are more higher-level functioning patients. But they tend to isolate themselves and get more withdrawn um, and more difficult for families to get a hold of as well and, and resistant to care. Um, you know, there's pride and dignity at stake here that they're not willing to give up control of their lives to somebody else. Um, there's a lack of insight with the disease that they might not recognize that something's actually wrong. So, you know, it's, it would be kind of, it's understandable that they would get defensive if, you know, somebody's trying to change the way they do things or insist they do things another way. So these people tend to, um, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to get in there with them. It's hard to build trust and to kind of change it, change up things on them when they, they like things just the way they are. So that's just a few of the challenges. I mean, I could go on and on <laughs> because there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a lot. Yeah, there there definitely are a lot. And it, with our audience, if anybody wants to call in, um, feel free to do so at uh, 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4757. Or you can continue to use the chat box um, with any questions or comments that you have because, uh, again, we, we like uh, we like the conversation to, uh, to grow and kind of roll, um, you know, with where things are at because you guys come up with some, some beautiful things, beautiful comments. Um, what are some challenges that you see as an occupational therapist in terms of uh, dealing with somebody with dementia, um, not because it's not. I would imagine you're not just dealing with them, but you are dealing with their care partner as well in terms of giving instructions and and things like that. I, I would think that it would be a little bit more complicated um, than your average bear out there, where you're just giving them these are your exercises and the person is going to go home and do them. Um, or or am I wrong on that? Oh no, you're you're right on. Um, you know, the, with, without the caregiver's involvement, it's really really difficult to have any sort of um, effect with any therapy approaches you're going to try to implement. You know, you have to have mm-hmm. people on board <clears throat> because a lot of times you're, you're just not going to get investment from the patient because they don't like. You know, you talked with Mary earlier about um, you know they don't have the insight to recognize what's going on. They don't they don't know that they're not the best person to make that judgment. So mm-hmm. you need to get um, the family members involved. And what's difficult is when everybody's in the same room. And you, you don't want to try to uh, take power away from the patient. You don't want to um, force your reality on theirs. That's that's one thing you guys were talking about as far as trying yep. to um, correct them when, they, when they're, they're wrong about something. But, you know, that's really not the point. You're trying to bend to whatever their reality is. So it's you know you have to have unfortunately some some conversations over the phone when they're not in the room that can be more um, more honest. Uh, it, it's a delicate it's a delicate situation. Um, you know, you're just trying I, I would to build imagine. trust with yeah you're trying to build trust with all the players and you know ultimately the patient needs to know that I'm there just to help them. I'm not there to undermine them or to um, change something that isn't broken. I'm just only trying to improve things. That's it. And if I can get them to believe me that that's really my only intention here, then, you know, they'll let me be a little more open about what I see, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do we do some cognitive testing that show some objective data, and I can show them the score. And without embarrassing them or pointing out, you know, 
or criticizing, it's like, you know, you can see that you do have a little bit of memory loss. And do you, can you see that in your own life? And they might say, oh, yeah, you know, or sometimes, no, I don't see any problem with my memory. <laughs> sometimes uh-huh. you get that too. But you just try to, you build a case, and if they're if they're willing to accept it, then that's great. You can, it's a little bit easier. But if they're not, then you don't, you don't fight that. You just have to engage the caregiver in the reality of the situation and, and offer your suggestions through them. And, you know, and maybe try to come at it as a team. You know, this is what we think we should do. And, you know, it's not easy. It's a very delicate process. You know, not yeah. 100% you, successful. <laughs> well, and do you find that, because I can, I can see where this might be frustrating for, you know, care partners and companions um, getting the instructions of it's just one more thing now I have to deal with. You know, if there's, you know, one more Absolutely. appointment or one more exercise. So um, <clears throat> do you do you see that level of, of frustration and kind of angst in people sometimes? Absolutely. You know, and um, part of my teaching is I don't try to um, upset the apple cart and let's do everything differently because it, it's mm-hmm. just too overwhelming. And, and the, the game changes every day. The rules change every day. What worked yesterday doesn't work today. So... You know, it's what, what I think we're best on doing is focusing on abilities and things that they can do well because they get joy out of that and satisfaction out of that, and there's some potential that they'll be able to do these functional tasks long into the disease. So those mm-hmm. are the, the, the things that they're successful with are the things I focus on, and the caregiver appreciates that too. So I try to separate strengths and weaknesses. So these are the things that, you know, mom is still able to get her own shirt on, so let's let her do that every day. Just let her put her own, you know, you get the range of motion. She gets fine motor with buttoning the shirt. um, And she can keep that skill long into the disease. Whereas if you start helping too soon, you take away that function too soon. But her pants are difficult, you know, and she struggles. Her back hurts and her knees hurt. And so go ahead and help her with that. And don't make that part of the whole routine. Just just help her with that. So by splitting up the amount of care into what we're going to let them do and what you're going to help with, I think that Mm -hmm. helps give the caregiver a clearer idea of, okay, this I'm going to help this much. That's not too much or too little. I'm just going to help help this much. Uh-huh. It's a little more clear guidance on, on what how they can be useful, you know, maximize their, their help. Sure, that and that, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, someone is asking, how would you work with someone who doesn't want to take a shower? Do you have any hints uh, on that? Yeah, that's, that is very, 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 very common and very difficult to um, to negotiate that because it's not a it's not a conversation you're going to win. It's really it needs to be their idea for the most part, and it needs to be um, maybe rewarded or mm-hmm. or bargained for. You know, um, you can set boundaries as far as you know. You don't want to offer an open ended question like what day this week do you want to take your shower or what time today do you want to take your shower. It's too open ended. If you give them a choice of two, do you want to take your shower? at 11 o'clock, or do you want to take it at 2 o'clock? And, and they have to pick one. It, you know, you're kind of narrowing the, the choices a little mm-hmm. bit. That that might help. Um, okay. Frequently, um, am I talking too quick, Lori? No, <laughs> no, no, you're very, fine. Very fine. Um, a lot of times, you know, it's a comfort thing as far as, uh, you know, being naked and cold is not pleasant for a lot of people and the thought of undressing. and So you want to make the room as warm as possible. Um, keep them draped until they're actually in the shower. So a towel or a sheet or something to, to cover them a little more so they don't feel quite so exposed, um, that might give you a little more success as well. 
um, having a, a reward afterwards, like, you know, let's get your shower because then we're going to go see so-and-so or somebody's coming for a visit or um, let's have some cake, you know, something. Mm-hmm. Some kind of reward might help a little bit too. Um, and, and then I think especially in, in – um, aggregate settings where you in assisted living or a nursing home, there's usually one caregiver who's more successful than others. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a son or daughter. Sometimes it's not. You know, I think finding the person who they're most agreeable to do that with and sticking with that plan um, helps also. Because there's usually one person who, who can convince them that it's time to take a shower, you know. Well, and do you find, because, I mean, I, I know a lot of times um, I'll hear, you know, Maybe they don't. Maybe they grew up not taking a shower every day, and we're still trying to push that as yeah. their routine. You know, maybe they only took one every once a week, or once every two weeks, or maybe it's time. Maybe it's time to change to sponge baths because of the discomfort. And you know, to me, it gets back to that: Are they safe? Are they happy? Are they pain free? For my mom, I'll throw this in. She she used to love the water. Absolutely loved it. And um, she would say the shower hurt her. And I didn't understand that. And Tipa Snow, who is one of the most fabulous uh, trainers out there, you know, I pulled her aside and I'm like, what is up with this? And she said, well, as we age, we lose our fat pads. And I said, well, my mom's a real heavy lady. And she says it has no, uh, it has nothing to do with someone being heavy or not. She says we lose our fat pads as we age um, that cover our nerves. And so um, sometimes a regular shower head with forceful water can actually hurt their body. And mm-hmm. so I immediately went right back to the nursing home, grabbed the the uh, administrator and said, I want to make a donation and I want you to change all your shower heads to rain shower heads. And that really helped her and it helped a lot of others oh, that's as great. well. And so um, just, you know, so, I mean, sometimes it can be goofy stuff that we just don't know um, mm-hmm. that can make a big a big difference or having a handheld versus, you know, one in the wall because then you can control when they're getting wet um, or yeah. use, using, you know, the seat instead of standing. And um, there's there's lots of different things or the length of time. and um, But I, I think you're, you're right on about, you know, keeping them warm because they do get chilly and keeping them covered and, and being respectful, you know, with that um, is really important. Um, you know, if if you've got the ability, um, and not everyone does, but to even have heated um, floors in a bathroom, I would love to see all communities have heated floors and heated towel bars. Um, I think yeah. that would reduce things a lot. But you know, what do I know? That's just, that's just right. me. Kind you know, of and I think like it's it's you got to pick your battles too, because like mm-hmm. you said, showering isn't the only way to take a bath. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and and unfortunately there are, and I was speaking just typically from a behavioral standpoint when they don't want to shower, but there is a sense of safety when you equip the bathroom well. Like you said, you have a seat, and you can make it safer and a better experience, but it doesn't have to be a shower, you know. And and unfortunately later in the disease, they do sometimes get more cooperative once the personality um, difficulties have kind of passed and you, you have somebody... Who's, who's not making their own decisions as much, you know, that there's less mm-hmm. resistance sometimes. 
I mean, you can kind of pick your battles. I, and I'm not sure showering is, is worth a lot of the anxiety it causes a lot of caregivers sometimes, you know. Just because it was their habit at one time to, to shower regularly and they, you know, very, um, they were, they just paid a, a lot of attention to their appearance before. You know, mm-hmm. like you said, are they happy? Are they safe? Are they pain-free? You know, that, yeah. that really is what it comes down to, so. I agree yeah. with you very Linda, much on that point. Yeah. Linda's saying her husband's having more accidents, you know, in his clothes. And oh, so, yeah. Yeah, you know, that need to be clean. Yeah. Definitely need to be clean. But but I think part of it is, um, you know, what they're using for product line and stuff, too, and how uh-huh. often are they checked. Um, because if, if you're checked and, and clean, just like with a baby, um, you can, you know, you can go in there and, and wash them down and make sure that the skin's not breaking, you know, because you don't want to have, you know, any infections and things that way. Um, But you can mandate that they check him, you know, every two hours and have him changed if if he has an incontinence problem, um, you know, or what type of of, um, products are they using? You know, are they using the Depends or, um, you know, there's, there's, um, what is it? Wherever out there, there's lots of different types of of products as well. But I would bring that up in a in a in the care conference and say I really have concerns, you know, with this. What can we do? The other thing we did in my mom's um, nursing home when I went in to to do the shower heads. Doug said, oh, he's, he's the administrator. He says, oh, your timing is so good, Lori. He's like, you'll never know what's on my desk right now. And I said, what? And he said, um, we're going to redo the bathrooms. What else would you like to see? And I said, I'd like to see aromatherapy <laughs> used in there. I'd like to see music pumped in there. Um, I'd like to see different, co- you know, different colors because they had like the canary yellow thing going on. And um, they just made a ton of changes. And it just, it, it, really looks very beautiful now and the atmosphere mm-hmm. is so different. And so they they incorporated a lot of things in and they said the music has really helped but of course it has to be music of their, you know, the patient's genre. Generation. And, yes. Yeah. And um and again you you still have to know, you know, if that I mean cuz certain songs can trigger different emotions so you have to know that before you before you get in there. Um Linda had mentioned there's also heated uh, shower chairs which uh which is also another another great uh great route um with that. So good good questions. Keep them coming, you know. There's uh Oh, and Linda, about about the diaper situation too. Um this is just a suggestion that's worked for me before. Sometimes those um you know the pull-up type of of undergarment it can be uh you know it's off with the shoes off with the socks off with the pants on with the, the new pull-up you know you have to disrobe to get the a pull-up back on again um but sometimes if you put a pad inside the pull-up that's a good temporary you know every two hour just pull the pants down far enough to change the pad out and you don't have to change the whole pull-up garment every single time does that make sense oh yeah that makes a lot of sense that makes a yeah, lot of that, sense and you get a lot, you get better compliance because it's not such an ordeal, and it's quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, and you know, you're not, they're not sitting in a fully saturated depends, you know, for a long time. Yeah. So um, maybe try that. There's little for men is those, well, I think for women too. There's these little poise pads that fit inside a pull-up, so you get double yeah. layer. 
There's a um, a company I just ran across called Wherever. In fact, I'm going to have them on the radio show to talk about this. And they have, I mean, some really nice-looking underwear, you know, that is washable. Uh-huh. So you don't have to, you know, you don't have to be buying the Depends. It's not big and bulky all over, just in the areas you need it. And, um, you know, they have different types depending on, you know, the severity of the incontinence. And um, mm-hmm. I just found it really uh, very interesting because, I, I mean, all I knew for the most part was the Depends. I'm, and, you know, Depends is kind of like Kleenex. Everybody calls a tissue a Kleenex. <laughs> you know? Exactly, yeah. And and you just kind of visualize that. And so I, I do think that that's um, an important thing because, uh, you know, just keeping people comfortable and um you know is huge because that can trigger a lot of other a lot of other things there so good um can you tell us um sue what is the focus of an occupational therapist you know later on in the disease process can you really do anything with somebody who's in in later stages actually yes you can um, you know, the big focus of therapy later on is prevention. So we're preventing falls, skin breakdown, aspiration, and contractures. Those are the big ones. And contractures are those shortened uh, soft tissue around the joint. So their hands clench in like fists and their knees mm-hmm. bend and it's hard to straighten their knees out. So at the end stages of the disease is when people get very tight and they tend to curl up a little bit. So we're trying to prevent that, those postures from happening because those are, those are painful postures, actually, and it's difficult to move them and to clean them and get inside those spaces when they're tight like that. So um, there's a lot to do in those later stages. And I'll, I'll say that I think the most neglected uh, times during this disease process is in the very beginning and at the very end because that's when people don't recognize the need as much. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that's important to know is, like, later in the disease, there is actually usable brain tissue in there. It's like, you know, a lot of the things that we associate with, um, you know, good cognition, like, um, you know, like memory and emotions and um, problem solving and, you know, it's being able to engage in the environment. When those systems are gone, you think nothing's left. But really, there's a lot of brain tissue left. There's a, the sensory cortex and the motor cortex actually are one of the last things to go. So you can still provide sensory experiences through touch and smell and taste and um, vision and hearing. You know, you can still access people, um, but you just need to know how to get in, like what works and how how close do you need to be to their eyes for them to attend to you because it it gets closer to you as the disease progresses. So like right up in their face is where you need to put the cupcake so they can see it and smell it and, you know, and, and recognize it. Or, the, or your face even, if they want to recognize you, you need to get right up there where they can really attend to you. So there's lots of things we can do later on in the disease to access what brain power is still there, you know, mm-hmm. and, as well as preventing, because prevention is huge too, because a lot of these people don't need to, to go down the path that they frequently do. And, you know, it's kind of a soapbox I get on <laughs> about mm-hmm. that, but a lot of that stuff is preventable if, if they're cared for well. So. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. I'm just gonna. I'm just noting in the chat box. Linda is saying that um, where her husband is, they don't provide, um, you know, the pull-ups or depends, and that she can't afford them, and so then he has these accidents. And 
I would think there's got to be a way to get that covered because I would think that, I mean, that could be um, a hazard for him to fall. You know, if he's wetting himself, he could slip on the floor from a liability standpoint. So, uh, again, I don't know, Linda, where where your husband, you know, is at, if he's in a memory care or a nursing home or if you're in an assisted living um, and trying to manage things yourself. Um, it doesn't sound that way. Um, I would I would really check on that and really question them on that from a safety standpoint. And if, you know, the, the depends and the disposables are, are very expensive. And um, this this wherever product, um, you know, they're not cheap, but they're a lot cheaper than the disposables. And you know, they're not going to fill. You know, they're they're eco friendly. All of those types of things too. So I would really push for that because I would be worried that he's going to fall. Because my mom, you know, in her early uh, earlier stages of incontinence, I mean, she slipped a couple times in her own urine. And that should be, I would think, a preventable thing that could be looked at and maybe be covered with that. So, um, well, sure, and a, the skin breakdown too. That, I mean, that's a whole yep. other risk right there, sitting in in your own wet. You know. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm and surprised um, Medicare would have, uh, I would, or Medicaid um, might have a program for that. I would think. Not sure. There's got to be something out there, you know, and part of it is us just talking about it and realizing the needs uh, because I think I think it's really easy for a lot of um, communities to just say, um, no, we don't do that, we never have. And, you know, and it takes somebody to stand up and say, that's not right, you know, um, to get things changed. And maybe it's a, maybe it's an old policy that needs to be changed. Um, maybe and, and maybe there are you know rules and regs that don't allow them to do that. I don't know. There's got to be some type of uh, there's got to be some type of program out there, and if there's not, there needs to be one. And, right. You know, I, social Linda, services maybe even the, the, to hear that. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like the Department of Aging or, or mm-hmm. some um, local government agency might be able to steer you in the right direction. Because um, there's there's funds for that sort of thing some places. You know, people have – different agencies have funds for certain um, – I mean, not a lot of funds, but maybe for something like that. Yep, exactly, uh-huh. exactly. You know, it can't hurt to try. It can't hurt to try. So how do people, you know, gain access to rehabilita- rehabilitative um, services, you know, like occupational therapy and, and – um, and physical therapy, you know, how do they, where do they go? What's the first step? The first step is the physician. And this mm-hmm. is actually a big, a big conversation going on in the Alzheimer's Association um, and on Capitol Hill as far as trying to um, allocate funds for, and, and policies of how to get people newly diagnosed into a system, a system that doesn't exist yet, but some system where um you know, they're getting the, the services they need right away. So, you know, the, the physician right now is the person who needs is the driver of the machine. So, you know, you talk to the doctor, say, I, you know, I really want some therapy for my um, mom or dad or whoever, your, your loved one. That's the place to start. Um, sometimes mm-hmm. physicians, you know, the older school physicians, and, you know, I used to be of this mindset, so I understand, might think there, there is no rehabilitation potential here. So, 
you need to frame it in terms of, well, I, you know, I'd like them to look at um, the things I'm concerned about, like their skin or their walking, their falling, their home environment. You know, there's things that, you know, when they think of rehabilitation, they might think of you're trying to make it better, make them better or make the disease better, but you're really trying mm-hmm. to compensate for, for their deficits. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a lot of education, um, but I think that the doctor's the first place to start. And then, you know, it might be a, a trial and error of finding the right therapist as well. You know, it's, it's a new field for all of us to to learn how to work with these clients. So, you know, I think you have to start with a doctor and, and go from there. Yeah. And if you find a therapist that's not that's not cooperating, have them call me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you do. I mean, like anything, there needs to be a match there, I would think. Because if personalities don't sync, that would make it more difficult to, to get through the therapy. Sure. On that. So like getting your um, hair done, you have to get along with your hairdresser too, you know. Yep. <laughs> you have to yep. find the right person for you. Exactly. Um, I did put in the chat box um, whereverincontinence.com. And, um, again, for since we've gone down that road, I thought I would just um, provide that link for people as well, something to check out. And I think you'll be surprised just by what they look like. <laughs> Um, but they're they're made of specialty materials um, that are more absorbent, and so they don't have to have the padding all over. And um, you know, I, I never believed the commercial when I saw it, where what was it? Somebody on the red carpet was wearing I I think it was Depends, or maybe I just thought it was Depends in a you know in a tight, gorgeous red gown. And there's I'm thinking, no way, you know, no way. But you know, maybe she was wearing a product like this. I don't know. Um, but it, I was. I was very surprised, but in looking at it, um, they look great. Uh, they're going to be sending me out a, a case of different things to kind of check out. So I'll uh, I'll have a better idea when we when we do the show. But again, another option there for that. That's great. Um, any other questions that our audience have? You know, again, please type them in. We're we're coming down to the finish line here uh, with our time frame, and I want to make sure that we. Uh, get your questions answered. Um, in the meantime, um, Sue, can you tell us, um, do you see more people in home or do you see more people um, in a community setting um, or a clinic setting? What's what's the most likely do people have to? I know you guys, it sounded like go to the home as well, um, but do you mm-hmm. see people in clinical settings as well? Yeah, we we follow the gamut pretty much. Um, you know, if somebody has Alzheimer's and they're at home, they're most likely in the early stages. Mm-hmm. Um, the the middle stage folks are the ones who go to an assisted living and memory care unit. Um, you know, and then as their care progresses, maybe to a nursing home. So yeah, we see people at at all levels, in all settings, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so pretty much everywhere. Okay. And I've been doing okay. this long enough that I've I've pretty much worked in every setting too. So. Okay. Is there something that you would like to see that that isn't out there right now for occupational um therapists uh dealing with dementia patients? Is there is there a change that you'd like to see in the system? Yeah, there's um yeah, actually. The gosh, where to begin? The <laughs> stigma about Alzheimer's <laughs> the stigma about Alzheimer's disease is something that the, the conversation just has to change. It's not mm-hmm. it's not a, an old person's um, part of aging kind of 
thing that we don't talk about. You know, it's a disease. It's like a brain tumor. It's it's an encephalopathy. It's cancer. It's a disease that you need to talk about in the room. Like, okay, you have a disease. What's our plan of attack? And that's mm-hmm. where nobody knows what the plan of attack is. There is no guideline for, okay, this is our first step. This is our second step. Um, people are, are blindly trying to find their way through the system. They're 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 not getting ad, um, accurate diagnoses, you know. And, and part of it is there is no pharmacological treatment that's really going to slow it down or cure it. Which leads me to my second point that you know advocacy and um, you know getting on our legislators to allocate the, the funds to to find the research to you know cure this disease is really really what where it needs to go. You know, I, I've been compensating for this disease for a long time, and I'm very tired of it. <laughs> you know, I'm ready mm-hmm. just to eradicate it because, you know, the compensation and these, these little tricks and tips, like I said, they're temporary. They're not solutions. They're, they're Band-Aids. And, mm-hmm. you know, although it's my bread and butter, it's not satisfying. It's like, well, what are we going to do? What's a, what's a viable treatment option here? How are we going to slow this down? So, I'm sorry, I'm getting off topic. I know, I don't think therapists... Um, I think I think the the paradigm is shifting. Like it is becoming more about um giving these people rehabilitative services. It is getting more mm-hmm. and more that way. It has to. It has to. The whole population's booming into into this um the demographics just growing in, in Alzheimer's disease. So you know, I think our therapists need to do a better job of finding ways to access people that aren't traditional, they're not conventional. They're worried about being paid because the payers, Medicare and insurances, um, you know, they're they're following somebody who broke their leg and they want to see a, a nice steady show of progression up to independence and it doesn't work that way. So we have to kind of rewrite the we have to rewrite the the norm, you know, of what what, what a normal patient with Alzheimer's disease because they don't get better, but something might improve incrementally. So let's measure that and let's um, you know, fund that. So. I don't know. I have a lot to do. <laughs> a lot of work well, to do. So. Well, and your your passion definitely comes out, and I I appreciate that, and I know our listeners do too, because it's uh, it's our passion that is going to make the changes, um, and it is you know it is going to drive things around the corner and and working together. And again, I think having these conversations is really healthy to do. Um, you know, over in the UK, a lot of their uh, you know they'll they'll say we don't really go to the doctor the the nurses come to us and and I'm like really you know and the, and so their nurse block program is very different than ours in terms of what it is that they do i mean they just they have very few clinic appointments unless it's you know to even drawing blood and stuff can be done from the house and to keep them right. as comfortable and um in sync as possible and I think well that just really makes a lot a lot of sense I know for mm-hmm. my mom it uh, you know when she went to the nursing home I always used to bring her to the doctor and then that started causing stress what's wrong what you know what's wrong with me what's wrong with me and now she just sees the the in-home doctor and that has just alleviated so much stress because she would get worked up for days ahead of time mm-hmm. Uh, you know when she was notified, and so it's. I think it's really important for us to look at our service delivery systems and um, making sure that they meet the needs instead of causing more problems, which right. uh, I think many times they do. 
You know, and I think the physicians realize they might not be the best person to mm-hmm. they might not be the best person to assess and and decide what the plan's going to be uh, other than I mean they have their medical things they they need to address but you know when the when the patient with Alzheimer's goes to the doctor they're they're on their best behavior they're cleaned up they say the right things mm-hmm. they can cover it up there's there's no insight into what's going on at home you know mm-hmm. and even when they give them a medication and send them home there's no way to measure if it's working or not you know, there's, yes. the doctors aren't the boots on the ground. So I think, like you said, the, the delivery model needs to be people who are in the home and people who are watching what's going on and are, you know, directly um, in front of the patient all the time. Yeah, they disagree with me. They don't want they don't want the job because they don't think they can do it well. So, well, and especially when they have you know ten or fifteen minutes, you know, because that's all the right. insurance says that they can they can spend with them. They know they're really doing a disservice. In a lot of ways, and you know, now they're just plugging in, um, you know, symptoms into the computer, and instead of really having a conversation and digging deeper, you know, with what mm-hmm. with what's going on. And um, I know for my mom, we we started um, <clears throat> just emailing ahead of time our list of concerns because I didn't want to spend that time in the consultation going over it. I wanted them to know that when they walked in the door when our clock mm-hmm. started ticking. And that really helped a lot. Sure. Um, plus, it allowed, if we were seeing issues, um, for them to be addressed in a more respectful fashion instead of, you know, it looking like I'm tattling. Um, right. Now they, they could be brought up in a different fashion and, and I wasn't the bad guy. And I know that that's a, something doctors talk about a lot, that, you know, we want to be able to help you because you have to go home with them. And when you're looking like a, a tattletale, um, it just complicates things even more and the defenses go up and we're not having as rich of conversation as, and as beneficial um, because now it's it's you against them and the Right. The doctors I know would you know that I've talked to said you know let it be me against you guys you know you you remain as a team intact and um, and let me help you through this process as the professional and and an outside person as you know can say a lot more than a family member can you know right. they can say exactly. the exact same words but <laughs> they're taking exactly it's totally totally different light. Well, um, Sue, it's just been great to have you on the show. Do you have any um, last tidbits of advice that you want to uh, give people at all? Uh, You know, I just can't stress enough the importance of education and information um, and being prepared for what's next down the road, Um, Mm -hmm. which I know it's it's a challenge for caregivers. But, um, you know, you you can go to my website. I try to address a lot of this on thedementiaqueen.com. I love questions. I like to, you know, try to help with whatever the pertinent issue is. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think it's staying informed and staying uh, being an advocate when there doesn't seem to be any answers. There probably isn't, so we have to keep hammering away till we find some. So exactly. And for people to reach you, is the easiest is either to go to um, is it your Facebook page? Which is um, Dementia Queen, is that correct? I have The Dementia Queen on mm-hmm. Facebook. Um, my blog is called thedementiaqueen.com, and there's okay. a place to ask questions there. And then my email address is dq at thedementiaqueen.com. Okay, wonderful. 
Well, great. Well, thank you for all the work you're doing, and um, I, we can really tell that you're passionate and and here to help. And I hope our listeners will tap into you and um, start, you know, ask some questions and engage you in your blog and and the resources that you have there. So um, have a great day, and I'm sure we'll be in touch. And, uh, again, thank you so much for all you're doing. Oh, thank you, Lori. Thank you very much. Okay, have a great day now. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Um, in a wrapping up the show today, I just want to remind people again that our next Dementia Chats will be uh, June 25th, and that's at 2 p.m. Central, noon Pacific, and 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Those are free webinars where I interview people with dementia. Uh, they are a great resource. Many are using those for family discussions, for support groups, for staff training. Um, so feel free to tap tap into those. Those are listed on the Alzheimer's Speaks website. And because they've gotten so popular, I will be um, hopefully within this next week we'll be getting up our own little tab with dementia chats under the about page. But for right now, you can go to the about page and uh, just go under um, becoming dementia friendly is the easiest uh, is the easiest segment to find. Just scroll down on that page there. I also want to again remind people if you're looking for a support group, you know, check Alzheimer's Disease International at www.alz.co.uk, and you'll be able to find um, any Alzheimer's association in the world, um, and that. Uh, That'll just be a blessing. They've got lots of resources, and uh, of course, there's uh, um, you know great support groups and uh, information to be found there. Um, Coral Health, um, again with music prescriptions, Music First has that app. I had them on the show just a bit ago, and uh, that's a great. Uh, inexpensive tool that you can use uh, to help people calm down, wake up, all different types of things. And you can find them at www.corohealth.com. That's C-O-R-O health.com. And then the Alzheimer's Studies, again, if you're looking for a clinical trial, they're doing their tau trial right now. Feel free to to check uh, check them out as well at the alzheimerstudies.com. And if you want to reach Mary uh, Brett, who was with us earlier, again you can go ahead and um, go to her website at www.brettcoaching.com, and she would be more than glad to talk with you and assist you in, in any fashion. I found today just to be a very fun, fascinating show. I'm going to give one more plug to the Jiminy Wicket group out there for croquet. If you've got an organization and are looking for a fun way to um, really build smiles and and engage on an intergenerational level in an inexpensive, easy fashion, um, you have to get a hold of James. And just go to www.jiminy, and that's J-I-M-I-N-Y, and then wicket, W-I-C-K-E-T dot com. The... Um, 
The other two that I had mentioned, I'll just go over quick, was the wherever incontinence underwear and then um, carrying together, which was that respite um, resource in Atlanta. So until next time, and next time will be July 7th or July 2nd, um, when we're going to have the blondes versus the brunettes and the heartbeat lullabies on, we will uh, talk to you soon. Have have a blessed week. Bye now. Hey everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurpose on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.